0: God, we stand in the power of Christ. We live in the death of Christ. Our joy is in the joy that was set before Him and He endured the cross to obtain it on our behalf and He commands us as a good, righteous, holy, and benevolent King to submit to Him for our joy. Would you help us to do that? Help us to see Him in all of His glory and be glad to lay down everything we have in order that we may receive abundantly through Him. Amen. If you want to turn now to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2, picking up from the birth of Christ So we ended last week in Matthew chapter 1. So we'll get there in just a moment. But first, we take a look at Herod. Herod the king. A man always seemed to to be looking over his shoulder. In his mind, every single person was a potential enemy. Everybody was a threat to Herod. He was walking on eggshells all the time. Even his own family caused him great concern. He never could tell. Which of his family was plotting against him to steal away his throne? History, however, records that Herod, his rule in Israel, was rather successful. He did a lot of great things for the people. After some initial disagreement with Augustus Caesar, he was finally given freedom, the stamp of approval from Caesar, to rule Israel, Judea, as he saw fit. Herod is known for these massive building projects all over Israel. He founded a new city on the coast in the Mediterranean Sea by building a port, inventing new methods for building harbors. He expanded fresh water supply and transportation systems all over the region. He even rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem to hand over to the authorities in Jerusalem. He established fortresses to protect Israel all around the region. Herod managed really well the great resources in the land of Israel and brought wealth and relative peace to God's people there. He'd even managed to work well enough with the religious rulers of the day to try to keep down uprisings from those fanatics. But with all this prosperity, he still could never shake this feeling that someone was out for him. Within a year of being confirmed as the king of Judea, he suspected that his own wife was trying to take his throne from him. And so he quickly executed her. And then her mother came to her defense, saying, this man is crazy. Nobody should follow him. And she declared herself queen. And he quickly disposed of her as well. A year later... Herod got remarried, found himself a new wife that he didn't think was a threat, but turns out he thought her brother was a threat. So he found a way to off him. So ten years goes by. He has some sons. He's got a group of sons that he's finally like, these boys, they're going to be my heirs. We have a plan that when I die, some 80 years from now, they're going to take over and be and carry on the Herod family tradition. But... He accused them of even trying to steal the throne too soon. And in 7 BC, he had the courts agree to execute two of his own sons. Then, the tyrant still wasn't finished. Another of his sons, three years later, just must have looked at him wrong, given him a silly glance, and suspicion rose in his heart, and off went another one of his heirs. Twenty-five years had gone by since he first rose to power in Judea. His wealth and great support for building projects brought peace and prosperity to the land, but also his vindictive passion for self-preservation created a tension in Jerusalem that nobody dared to challenge. Who would want to upset this tenuous peace by challenging such a tyrant's throne? And now we pick up the story of Herod's reign in Matthew chapter 2 with a new challenger to the throne. This time Herod stands no chance of holding down an uprising. He was right to suspect that someone was coming after him. In fact, over a thousand years before he even was born, it was predicted that he would lose his throne to another king. Follow along in Matthew Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed from their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So already in the book of Matthew, we're just starting the second chapter. And already we got this great intense drama unfolding. Every good story has drama, has some conflict, and usually it takes some time to develop the characters first before you jump into the conflict. But here we are. Jesus can't even talk yet, and he's already striking fear into the hearts of the corrupt political and religious establishment. This world is quite different from the one that the Jews had hoped they would live in by this time. They longed for a Messiah to come and take away all this Roman oppression and give them the peace and prosperity that they had hoped for for so long. They had some, but technically they were still under the authority of the Roman Empire. And they ruled through this crazy King Herod, who wasn't even a son of David but they figured out some peace and prosperity. It allowed them a level of freedom from Roman influence. It allowed the religious rulers to have a little more power than they had before. So it wasn't the salvation they longed for, but they could live with it. But as we saw last week, the Messiah did come. He came as a baby, completely unexpected, apparently, by the religious rulers. The long-awaited King of Israel, the son of David, came as a little baby, somehow escaping the carefully watching eyes of the chief priests and scribes. These guys knew their Bibles better than anybody else in the world. They knew that the son of David was supposed to be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. But they missed it somehow, or even suppressed it. Ironically, as God has shown from time to time in redemptive history, It's Gentiles, these non-Jews, who are able to see more clearly than the Jews could. And so here in Matthew chapter 2, he introduces a major turning point in God's plan of redemption. Jesus is the rightful king who is ascending to his throne, but not just to wipe out the enemies and bring in all the Jews. But now the entire world is going to recognize, recognize his authority. As we've seen, Matthew's emphasis through his whole book is going to be, Jesus is the King. And in the first chap- So in the first chapter, he showed through this genealogy that he is the rightful heir to the throne as a son of David. And through this miraculous virgin birth and adoption by Joseph, he is in the family line of the King. And now he unfolds this mysterious idea As we saw in the book of Ephesians, this mystery that the Gentiles are going to be brought in, he begins to show us what that looks like. The Jewish scriptures foretold that the Messiah would come as a baby born in Bethlehem. They knew it was going to happen this way, but it's Gentiles that see it first. So the main point of our text today is that Jesus is ascending to his throne and will remove all challengers to his authority and draw all nations to himself. We'll take a look at this narrative in three parts to see that. In verses 1 and 2, first we'll see the inevitable conflict when Jesus' authority confronts another authority. Then we'll see in verses 3 through 8 the wrong response to the arrival of the king when Jesus presents his authority. And then in verses 9 through 12, they'll model for us the right response to this king. So first... The conflict, second, the wrong response, and then the right response. And we see in verses 1 and 2 this conflict. The beginning of each of these sections that I outline, in verse 1, in verse 3, and in verse 9, we see a reference to the king. But in these cases, the king is referring to Herod. But that should arise in us a few questions and feel the conflict that Herod felt as well. Because we saw in Matthew chapter 1, the last time that we saw this title, the king, was in chapter 1 verse 6, when David was called the king, establishing this as a royal lineage. And by implication, then Jesus, the last one in the line, is the rightful heir, the rightful claimant to that title, the king. We can feel it. Jesus is the king. And then we get to chapter 2 And the title is instead used of Herod. There's two kings in conflict here. Someone is sitting on the throne that Matthew says belongs to Jesus. His name is Herod. Who is Herod? Herod is a genius, really. Though, as my introduction showed, he's a little bit of a neurotic genius. Through careful political maneuvering, Herod was able to move from a lowly merchant class nobody who lived in the land of Edom all the way up to the ruler, the highest authority in the land of Israel. He oversaw the management of great natural resources. He even invented a way to pour concrete underwater and find a way to make it set and build a harbor out in the Mediterranean Sea, something nobody else in Israel could do up until that time. Herod also rebuilt the temple. It was bigger than it had ever been before. It rivaled the glory of Solomon's temple. So in his own crazy way, he did a lot of good things for Jews. He brought a lot of peace and prosperity to the land. But there was a problem. He was barely even Jewish himself. He was actually a descendant of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. He wasn't even a Jew His family at one point married into the Jewish family, and he claimed to convert to Judaism, but everybody knew he was no son of David. He didn't belong on the throne. But who could challenge him? Everybody saw what happened, if you even sneeze in his presence. So all this tension is building up, and suddenly these strangers just show up from a foreign land, completely ignorant, I guess, of what's going on, and they say, Hey, who, show us the one who has been born king of the Jews. Naturally, Herod is a little suspicious of what's going on. But he has to be careful. He can't just off these guys, too, who seem to be conspiring to put someone else on the throne. He's got to keep peace with the neighboring lands, or Caesar might take him out of his position if he's stirring up tr- more trouble. These wise men represent some powerful authorities that he must keep peace with, but he's got to find out who this threat is and get rid of him. So he kind of makes friends with these wise men. But then we must ask, who are these wise men? What threat do they present? We've heard stories and songs about these wise men from our Christmas traditions. We think that because there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that there must have just been three guys there. And we sing songs about them being kings. And that gives us a little more confusion. But generally, in the first century, these magi were essentially high-ranking court officials who were advisors to the king. Guys who gave advice by looking at the stars or interpreting dreams, as we saw in the book of Daniel. These were the same guys who couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. But... Recently, they saw something interesting happening out west. And who lived out west but Israel? Yeah, those people that had spent a significant amount of time in our land way back when, a few hundred years ago. And, you know, there's still a few of them around who didn't go back. They liked their life here. And perhaps they left some of their scriptures there in Babylon. So they see this star and they start asking questions. And soon find out that, a really special king would be arriving in Jerusalem. They had to check it out. And it's interesting to see how often in God's plan He reveals Himself to the least likely of people. He didn't go tell the king first. He didn't announce the arrival of the king to the chief priests and scribes. He announced it to foreigners, these astrologers, people who were the dirtiest God-haters of all. So on one hand, you have this crazy king who's jealous for his own power. And on the other, you have these foreigners who don't have any right to this land, but they're genuinely curious about the king. So they follow the star and they go to the palace where they think, yes, this is where you would find a king. This is where he'd be on display. And they talk to Herod and Herod says, I'm not sure what you're talking about. The current king is unaware of such a king that has arrived, and it's causing him some anxiety. So ironically, news that was anticipated for over a thousand years in this land to arrive in this city, this news was met with not much enthusiasm. And beginning here in verse 3, now we see the wrong response to the arrival of Jesus. This good news. Upon hearing this news, Herod, it says, was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. You would think that the Jews would be really excited to find out that their Messiah was, was possibly arriving. We better go check it out, just like these wise men. But they decided that out of their fear that they needed to do something to rid themselves of this threat. They knew that this Messiah has all authority and he is going to take away our power. So we see more of this irony in Matthew's story. The king of the Jews, the one that the wise men say, where is the king of the Jews? The Jews are already rejecting him and being embraced by, he's being embraced by the Gentiles. The Jews knew he was coming. They anticipated his coming, but yet they conspired to prevent him from coming. They go to their scriptures, which were written hundreds, thousands of years before to find out where he's going to be born. God promised he's going to be born here. Okay, we see it. Yes, the, the, the prophecy is being fulfilled. Let's go kill him so it can't be fulfilled. Over 700 years prior, when the nation of Syria had threatened to destroy all of Jerusalem, they're camping around the city. The prophet Micah comes to everybody and says, stay faithful to God. He will take care of us. The Messiah is coming soon. He will protect us from the enemy. So in Micah 5, he says, you will know when this Messiah is coming, when good news is announced from the city of Bethlehem that the king has arrived. The Redeemer has come. But the king on the throne in Jerusalem, along with the keepers of religious order, conspire to keep God from fulfilling his promises. Secretly, they try to trick the wise men into doing their dirty work for them. And in verse 8, we see that Herod says to him, go, tell us where he is so I can come and worship. But we know that's an empty claim. This crazy king just wants to rid himself of every threat. He didn't really believe the prophecy. He didn't really believe God was working even though it was plain right in front of him that it was unfolding before his very eyes. And as I read that, as I even think about that, I consider Jesus' promise to us that he's going to come back again. How do you feel about Jesus saying he's going to come back someday soon? He could interrupt my sermon. He says, coming soon. Wouldn't that be glorious? But how many of you think, well, it's going to be pretty awesome when Jesus comes. I mean, we're going to have heaven on earth finally. But, you know, it would be nice if he would wait just a little bit because I want to see my kids grow up and get married or I want to maybe get that promotion at my job. I'd love to see what happens in retirement in my life. In the same way, that's the heart that Herod had. Well, I want to accomplish many more things on the throne before this king shows up and interrupts my rule that's how we all are when we hear that we're supposed to submit to jesus if jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and he commands me to submit to him my life should change even atheistic evolutionary scientist sir julian huxley recognizes this truth even though he doesn't embrace. Embrace it. He doesn't submit to Jesus. He says, I suppose the reason we leaped at the origin of species was because the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores. He could see God intruding with his authority into our lives interferes with our own perceived sovereignty. Suddenly, when Jesus shows up, the people I surround myself with, what I plan for my life, must be directed by God. The things that I spend my time and my money on are determined by His priorities, not my own. So if we're honest with ourselves, we see we all have Herod's trouble. That we have dreams and aspirations that when we put ourselves on the throne, we do not want to give up. But if we see Jesus for who He truly is, It will be a joy to hand it all over to him. It shouldn't be a threat to our dreams and our goals, but an encouragement to embrace even bigger, more glorious dreams. So let's continue in verse 9 to see this appropriate response of the good news of Jesus' arrival. The wise men went on from Herod toward Bethlehem following the star. The star that they saw rose and went before them. Verse 9 shows us that this star is no ordinary astronomical occurrence. People for a long time have tried to figure out maybe there was a comet or a meteor or the aligning of two planets at the right time, but nobody can ever find something of note when you go back in the historical records or in the astronomical records. This star was unique. It suddenly rose in the west And then it stopped over Jerusalem and led them there. And when they were in Jerusalem, it moves in front of them and goes to Bethlehem and stops right over the house where King Jesus is. The Gentile prophet Balaam, back in Numbers 24, prophesied about this star. He said, one day a star would rise from Jacob. And rule over the world and remove all challengers to his throne, even Edom. How specific is that prophecy from a Gentile prophet? A star is going to rise out of Jacob. A son of Jacob is going to rule and take out of his throne a son of Edom. That just gets me excited to read that God is fulfilling his promises. And it should cause us to tremble. It should cause us to fall to our knees Look at how the wise men responded. Verse 10. This sentence, I had to read this over and over. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly. That's a lot of rejoicing. And then, redundantly, they rejoiced with joy. But not just any joy, great joy. So they this king shows up on the throne, on this, in the land on their scene, in their lives, and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. The stars in the sky and the Jewish Scriptures and the Jewish people had told them that their lives were about to be turned upside down by apparently the coming of the greatest king in the history of the world. And they rejoice. Opposite of Herod in all Jerusalem, these Gentile astrologers People thought to be the most foolish haters of God rejoiced greatly. And what did they do in their joy? They fell down, verse 11, and worshipped him. That's not necessarily to say that they recognized him as God. The word translated worship is describing a posture. It literally means to get down on your face on the ground and kiss someone's feet. So the word is suggesting it's an act of recognition of seeing someone's far vastly superior authority and trying to get as low as you can before them to say you are so much greater. And then they further show their submission to him by presenting him with gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh the richest things that anyone in this time could have. No Jewish family would ever find themselves with a handful of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Suddenly, Joseph and Mary go from peasants to the richest people in the land, being gifts that, given gifts that are fit for a king. These Jewish, powerful representatives of an, a great kingdom out east show up and say, here, have our treasures to this baby. It wasn't extraordinary for kings to travel long distances and present gifts to other kings. History records this happening quite a bit. I just read in a book with my daughter Grace about Egypt, how people would come to the pharaohs and bring them great gifts. And then we see it in the Bible as well, that when Israel was at the height of their empire, ruled by Solomon's wisdom, kings and queens travel from faraway lands, offering them gifts, saying, Wow, you are incredible. We are going to submit to you because in your wisdom we stand no chance against you. We are willing to submit to your wisdom, your guidance. Please make a treaty with us so that you won't destroy us. And we promise not to rebel against you. So this is a normal thing that would happen. And it happened once in Israel's history. But that nation almost crumbled out of existence. But while it was crumbling, Isaiah the prophet predicted that one day foreign nations would come back to Israel. They would all flock to Jerusalem to present him gifts again, the Messiah gifts. Anticipating this coming, Isaiah 60 verse 6 says, Kings are going to come and bring gold and frankincense and good news. Psalm 72 similarly says, Kings will pay tribute to him like a tax of submission to him. And fall down before him. So Psalm 72 is where we get this idea that these wise men, these magi, were kings. And we sing that song. So while it wasn't extraordinary for a foreign king to bring gifts to a king, what is really remarkable here is that they come and offer all their greatest treasures and get low to the ground before a baby in the middle of of a little podunk city out in a silly little country that nobody cares about. We see in Matthew again that despite Herod's efforts, God will fulfill his promises, and he is going to bring in the nations to be part of his kingdom. Nobody, not Herod or the chief priests and scribes, can thwart God's plans, even when the plans involve using a baby to turn your world upside down. Babies have a bit of a way of doing that in our lives. As I'm sure uh, Marta and David are figuring out right now. So what a fitting way this is for God to confront the idolatry that's happening there. To bring a baby. If you have been a parent for more than a day, you know how a baby can bring you to the edge of despair. These incessant cries and neediness brings you to your knees. But this baby is different. It's not His neediness that brings us to our knees, but His authority. He too will expose every idol, but contained in this little manger, in this tiny village, is the glory of the Creator of the universe, all contained there. It's right for us to bow down to Him, and hand Him everything we own. This baby came to be the hope of all nations, the King of the world. And in our sin, just like the Jews, we want Him to only come on our own conditions. To submit to our terms. Yes, we want someone with power, but as long as we can control that power. And here comes a baby, totally uncontrollable, with all the power in the universe. And as we've seen throughout Israel's history, whether it's through Balaam, the Gentile prophet, or Ruth, or Rahab, or these Magi from the east, it's often Gentiles, those who know they don't keep all the rules, who are willing to finally submit to the authority of God. God shows us again and again that His righteous King is not just for Jews, but for the whole world. And coming as a baby, He may not look like much, But soon he would grow to be this righteous king, the only righteous person who ever lived, and he would die, though, in place of sinners. And soon rise to a a throne even higher than the one in Jerusalem, the one in heaven over all kings. So the question that we're all left with now is, to whom are we submitting ourselves? Who is your king? Who's on the throne of your life? And you can ask that another way. To whom do you look for for provision in your life? Or protection? Do you go to the government to protect you? Or are you counting banking on your career to provide for you for the rest of your life? If you want to find out who your real king is, ask yourself how you would respond if the true king, Jesus, threatened to take something away from you. From this story, when we can see that when Jesus confronts us and tells us to submit, to tells, and tells us to enter his kingdom on your knees, we're left with two options. Only two options when Jesus arrives. First, we can, like Herod, we put ourselves on the throne and we can defend our reign and protect our pathetic little kingdoms. And we do so which with such slick and sophisticated, contemporary, technological manipulation to make it look like, oh, we're really good guys, or we really have great goals. We want to look like good people, so like Herod, we brag about our wonderful achievements and say, see, I'm doing good things. He can't interrupt my righteous reign. But all of that stuff is nothing if we don't recognize its worthlessness before Jesus the other option is to submit to Jesus rejoicing exceedingly like the wise men did. They recognized in that moment that everything they had, these great treasures that they had to offer Him as gifts were nothing compared to Him. Isn't it funny how He comes as a baby? How do you get submit to a baby? You've got to get really low to the ground to submit to a little baby. And these Gentiles recognized their lowliness in this moment. We are called to that same humble submission. To submit yourselves to His rule over your life. The good news is that this baby wouldn't just stay a baby though. He would grow up and become a wonderful king. But before that, he came as a servant. The king of the universe put on flesh and became a servant in order to save those who admit they're in slavery to all kinds of substitute kings you come and bow down before him knowing that he walked through every temptation every suffering on behalf of us and we look up to him and say i have nothing take whatever you want from me and make it something Everybody is going to eventually submit to Jesus. All knees will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We can do it unwillingly like King Herod did. And we'll see in a couple of weeks that he, will, he loses his throne much quicker than he anticipated. Or we can do it willingly, joyfully. As the wise men did, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, willingly handing over everything in our lives, saying, my life is going to be better here on my face before King Jesus. Just today, I was walking around the middle school here and I see these signs. I don't think there's one right here that say safe zone. This is a safe zone where you won't feel judged. And I, as I'm thinking about this text and Jesus showing up, I wonder what it means to have a safe zone before Jesus. At the same time, Jesus is both, both the most unsafe person to be around, confronting every one of your idols, but turning to him, to him is also the safest place you could be where he provides everything you need. He protects you from all enemies. He guides you through your life with wisdom and will lead you into an everlasting, joyful kingdom where every treasure imaginable is offered to you under his benevolent rule. Jesus is the righteous, rightful king of our lives. Will you recognize that today and joyfully surrender it to him? Let's pray. God, we recognize now that you have sent Jesus to be our king, our authority. So I pray you would show us, even as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, show us the ways in which we are still looking over our shoulder, wondering what you want to take away from us. Looking all over, wondering, will anyone find out this secret about me? God, before your eyes, it is all brought to bear. We are all naked. And in our sin, we are shame, ashamed because of it. But because of Jesus, we can be unashamed because He takes it all and cleanses us and lifts us up and exalts us into joy with Him. So I pray that we would be bold to confess our sins to one another, that one another, in one another we would be able to Encourage each other to see Jesus. To cast off all of our concerns and all of our idols and all of the ways in which we demand we remain on a throne of our lives. And we put it in the open and surrender it as gifts to Jesus, saying, take these broken things. We don't have gold and frankincense and myrrh. We have broken vessels of our lives. Take them and make us shine because Jesus will dwell in us. God, we love to think we have control. That even in our in our good Christian way, we like to say we're committing our lives to you. But even the word committing sounds like it's our own power. So we instead surrender. We just give up. We drop to our knees, God, and say, It's yours. Do what you wish with it. I pray, God, that you would lift us up off of our knees, and now we would sing together as brothers and sisters, rejoicing that we have brought into your, been brought into your kingdom of light, your kingdom of joy and love, and we would feel that, that glorious promise of love forever right now as we sing, as we eat together, as we pray together. Draw us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.